One more time. Welcome to 96 Careers, a podcast where we watch every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. Uh, who are we? I am Reg. And I am Patrick. And welcome back. Um, before we get into the designated uh, film for today's discussion, mm-hmm. um, this is late February 2024, um, which means this past week, uh, Academy Award nominations were released. Yeah, late uh, January. Late January, yeah. Yeah. Um, Neither of us are, but I would say I would say that both of us are pretty disillusioned with the Academy Awards. True, um, it can be a fun thing to read about and kind of see, you know, what got nominated and what won, and you know who slapped who or whatever. Uh, but I, I think with well, what do you? Why don't you uh, kind of give us your hot take? Oh, I, I mean, I, I read a book. Uh, called Down and Dirty Pictures, which was about the like 90s independent film boom, uh, like Miramax's position in that. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but like when you read about like, oh yeah, this is how these are, this is step by step how uh, uh, Weinstein bought an Oscar for Shakespeare in Love as Best Picture. <laughs> After you do that, I mean, I uh, watching the Oscars was never part of my cinephilia. Right. Um, it just never cer- really appealed to me. So uh, I didn't have any attachment to it to begin with, but that was like the thing that I read. And then I was able to go, oh, I can just fully disengage and not care about this made up thing anymore. Yeah. It's like at a certain point in your life, you realize that laws about weed being illegal are fake. And then you go, right. oh, that, never mind. That doesn't apply to me. That's I'm like a person who understands how the world works. So right, I don't right. have to worry about that anymore. Right, right. You're not you're not assigning that moral weight based on this like structure that's been built by other people. Yeah. Um, I also read a book that kind of got me disillusioned with the Academy Awards, which was Pictures at a Revolution, mm. um, which is about the 1967, I want to say, I believe you're Academy right. Awards. Um, it's it's fascinating just because it's um, it's this year that is this turning point for um, sort of uh, classic Hollywood into new Hollywood and also taking into account um, the civil rights movement uh, and just the sort of... Uh, uh, fine line walking politics that the academy tends to um tends tends to i mean even even back then and to this day there there tends to be this um sort of patina of progressivism uh when actually the academy awards are usually like the the last uh th- um the, the the last institution to kind of move forward and and be accepting with things that they should have been accepting of a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you can still see that tendency today. So, um, yeah, every time there's a, a news article about like someone being the first Asian woman nominated for a thing or whatever. Yeah. It's like it's it's positioned as if it's like this great thing, but it is always an embarrassing thing. It is always yeah. like, really? 2022? Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, yeah, and they're definitely uh, still kind kind of doing that. I was just uh, looking up the nominations, and there was something about uh, like like Jeffrey Wright, the first black actor to be, or or it was like Jeffrey Wright and his co star both nominated in the same category for American fiction, mm-hmm. uh, and it was like wh- I don't e- I don't even know what history you are claiming is being made, uh, but th- but it's, it's like 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 so. So much does the person writing this Wikipedia article feel the need to like make this look, you know, prestigious. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Jeffrey Wright. He's an mm-hmm. amazing talent. I haven't seen the movie, but I mean, he deserves all the awards. Uh, Him but he, and the other person nominated both very good in it. 
Oh yeah, I haven't. Mm-hmm. Well, you, oh, that's right. You saw it. Yeah. You saw it. American um, Fiction is the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but yeah, it was just sort of like the first black actors to blah 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 blah, and it's like, uh, all right. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, so um, but even though we we do kind of have um, this uh, disregard for the Oscars, mm-hmm. um, it's a big deal, um, especially if. Uh, that is your your career in Hollywood, and uh, I think it goes without saying that uh, Judy Greer got shafted. Never, never <laughs> been nominated for an Emmy or an Oscar. Right, right. Um, so you know, once again, uh, it's unfortunate, but you know, I guess it's. I mean, just given the 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 pattern, it's not too surprising. Um, but I think uh, for us doing this podcast, it was. Uh, a bit more of a letdown than it might have been in other years because we saw two films uh, that were released last year where she was the lead and gave amazing performances. That's true. One being Eric LaRue, uh, which did not have a theatrical release in 2023 and to our knowledge does not yet have one for 2024, but we saw it at the Chicago International Film Fest and you can check out the episode. Um so that wouldn't have been uh, th- that wouldn't have been a, an, an Oscar contender this year anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other film, Aporia, uh, again, wonderful lead performance. What would you say it was like it was like like Denver Film Festival? She got uh, no, no Denver even. Film Festival was Michael Shannon won a uh, an award for like breakthrough director for, oh, for Eric, Eric Larue. Larue. I don't think Aporia got nominated for anything anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, and and again, it is this like shoestring budget, small uh, sci fi film, which is not the kind of thing that usually gets nominated for those kind of awards. Um, but we at least wanted to recognize that, uh, that she, that she did some great work last year and, uh, we hope she continues to do so in the future. Were there any other, uh, like, uh, like movies or actors where you kind of, uh, were surprised that, that they didn't get nominations? Yeah. I mean, the big ones that everyone's already making a stink of, I don't necessarily need to talk about Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie or anything like that. But, um, I will say like the reason you have a podcast like 96 Greer's is because you really appreciate people who put in just sort of like clutch utility work on yeah. a film. And mm-hmm. they're just like, like the thing I feel we always go back to is like Judy Greer in adaptation is like not in the top 20 things anyone talks about adaptation. Sure. But she's brilliant in it. And right. it's just like a perfect, she just does everything she needs to do for the like five minutes of screen time that that she's relevant to the movie. Mm-hmm. She does it all perfectly. And um, to that extent, there's like some performances I was thinking of, like, obviously she wouldn't necessarily be in that slot for something like Eric LaRue, Mm -hmm. but Alison Pill to me is the Judy Greer performance in Eric LaRue, where it's like a small role, not a, not like a keystone of any real plot developments, but like so funny and so pitch perfect and walking this like very fine line between like darkness and Mm -hmm. levity and like. Um, and implying so much with just certain line readings and stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Alison Pill does a really excellent job. I mean, you, I, I usually don't associate her with that kind of work, but but kind of yeah, seeing her kind of kind of balance that line between someone who's an absolute farce, but also is very genuine in the kind of farce they are. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the sort of thing that is like 
never going to be appreciated in the realm. Like, you know, if, if Eric Luber comes out this year and somehow everyone loves it, which is yeah. never going to happen because it's a very strange and divisive movie. Yeah. But like if it be, suddenly becomes this like 2024 Oscar contender or whatever, mm-hmm. Alison Pill's never getting nominated. Oh, it no. Because it's just that's just not the kind of performance that people outside of 96 Greers and our, and our <laughs> beloved listeners uh, appreciate. Another one for me is I really, really liked uh, John Charles Cliche in uh, probably... Probably, there's a T at the end. His last name is spelled cliche, and then there's a T at the end. He's French, so I don't exactly know how it's pronounced. But Jean-Charles Cliche um, of Nobody's Hero, which is the uh, newest film by... Oh, I can't remember the director's name, but he did uh, he did uh, Staying Vertical right. and Stranger by the Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, a French director kind of does these like dark comedies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Strangers by the, by the Lake's not really a comedy. There's, there's just, some humor to it. It's just dark. Alain Griardi. <laughs> Uh, probably mispronouncing that as well. It's probably not so close to Goularty, but that's the way my brain served it to me. Anyway, the lead of that film, it's a very similar film to Staying Vertical, where it starts off with this slightly silly premise. Mm-hmm. And then as it goes on, it kind of keeps unfolding new and new layers of absurdism. And it's just this like spiraling screwball existential comedy about like uh, Islamophobia in France. And, mm-hmm. and, but like, Islamophobia in France, but also like the limits of like white liberalism and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. like, it's, it's very fucking funny and it's very interesting. And it's like just the kind of movie that no one paid any attention to. Right. Um, but he is great in it. So like, that's, okay. that's like the sort of thing I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, I think, I think for me looking at the, at the nominations, there were a few movies that were kind of in that realm of, like Oscar material where um, like, like just sort of the, the tone is right. The material's right. The, um, the critical claim is right. And got very few, if any nominations. Um, I was specifically surprised to see that uh, past lives only got nominated for original screenplay and best director, which I guess is the, the it, I feel I like it got nominated for best picture. I'm as sorry. Well. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Past Lives specifically, uh, which only got nominated for Best Original Screenplay and Best Picture, mm-hmm. which that kind of feels like, uh, I I, th- I think uh, I think Get Out was kind of in that same boat, where it's just sort of like, oh, here, here's the dark horse and we want to seem like cool and, and relevant because it's like, you know, the, this debut director, um, it's mm-hmm. like this very like small personal film, um, I mean, compared to um, other movies that get nominated for Oscars. So I guess it's not that surprising, but... Uh, the, the I mean the the three lead performances are so good, um, and it's such a moving film. I, I was a little um, bummed to see that it didn't get um, more buzz. Um, same thing with uh, May December, which I think only got nominated for original screenplay. Mm. Um, I mean, I could see where I mean it's a it's a messy messy film. Uh, so I can I, I can see where maybe. Uh, it's you know lacking the the kind of uh, dignity of Carol where where we kind of get yeah um, get overlooked. I think even but, Dark Waters maybe got a couple more nominations. Yeah, that, but, yeah. Uh, but I was surprised that uh, that Charles Melton didn't get nominated for Best Supporting Actor because everyone was just saying like what a revelation he was considering it was like it was like jock on riverdale mm-hmm. and then like he delivers this like really complicated performance yeah. and everyone's like like really taking notice yeah. i think i think natalie portman and julianne moore are both astounding in yeah. may december but they are like giving 
actorly big performances yeah. and they are sort of supported by the tone of the movie being so out there and crazy and right. like and and like the movie is all about supporting those performances and giving it a platform where they like stand out and make sense mm-hmm. and the only reason the movie as a whole works at all is because you feel so intensely for Charles Melton. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. he really actually, it's like, it, it is actually the perfect example of the Judy Greer thing where it's, well, no, Judy Greer isn't necessarily the linchpin of like what holds an entire movie together mm-hmm. often, but it is the sort of performance that goes undervalued compared to those bigger performances. But is actually, when you look at just like how the film is constructed, it's, it's like, it's the whole reason the thing works. Yeah, yeah. So often coming into uh, a scene and just, elevating it and and adding some real like tone and depth to it through her work mm-hmm. um which yeah just goes on to serve the the whole of the film um there needs to be like best cameo awards or like best I, you know i've actually read articles to that effect. <laughs> every couple extra. years every couple years someone brings up like you know, Peter Lorre in Casablanca is like, that's an Academy Award worthy performance. Right. But it, like, it wouldn't qualify for supporting actor because it's such a small part right. of the movie. But the, but then I guess, I guess, again, there's also um, actors who get, uh, who get nominated and get awards when they're only on screen for like 10 minutes. In Silence of the Lambs, Anthony Hopkins is on screen for 16 minutes total. That's funny. Um. Yeah, so it's the kind of thing where, you know, Judy Greer might be in a movie for that long, uh, but mm-hmm. doesn't seem to, ha- hasn't hit yet. But not yet. Yeah, not yet, but it's gonna. It's when gonna. they do the gender-swapped uh, Silence of the Lambs remake, though, <laughs> she might, by the time that happens, she might be the right age. I would want to see her in the Buffalo Bill role. You know what? That's why you can't do a gender-swapped <laughs> I don't know. Is is transmasculine Buffalo Bill the only way you can fucking smuggle that character into twenty into this decade? I, you know what? I'm sorry I brought it up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I was using this topic of conversation to delay discussing uh, the movie that we've chosen for this episode. Speaking of the horribly unpleasant images, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So uh, today we are discussing um, Janixa Bravo's debut feature film uh lemon uh janixa bravo probably better known for directing zola which came out in 2021 it might have been 2020 okay okay um but that that was like the 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 movie that kind of was notorious for uh being based on a twitter thread Mm -hmm. um you know but more specifically i I feel like its reputation is pretty good for a movie based on a Twitter thread. I feel like most yeah. people walked out of it surprised that it wasn't shit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I Yeah, I would agree with that. Pretty good for a movie based on a Twitter thread. Um, but this was her, her directorial... Um, this was her feature debut. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I had seen this movie uh, before. It's um, one of those... It's one of those indie films that's just sort of hanging out on Hulu. Um, and uh, I... Uh, it stars Brett Gelman, uh, who was her husband at the time. Uh, he also co-wrote the script. Uh, and I really enjoy Brett Gelman um, as a character actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's very funny in like in like Fleabag and Stranger Things mm-hmm. and Love. Um, so that's kind of why I checked it out. And I said to myself, you know what, Brett Gelman, 
He's like capers. You just need a little sprinkle to make the dish. Yeah, yeah. He, he's he's not the main ingredient. 96 Gelmans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 96 Gelmans. Um, and then, uh, of course, Judy Greer, Judy Greer was in it, along with a, with a whole host of other uh, uh, notable actors, and I'm sure we'll get into all that. But uh, so I, I knew this was coming eventually. I knew that uh, I knew that we'd have to uh, swallow this particular pill at some point when we started this project. And I have not, I had not seen it, mm-hmm. but I did know that you had told me the day after you watched Lemon originally, you were like, Ugh, it's one of those just like it's just uh, it was so like you really were you hated lemon yeah so i was not necessarily looking forward to this but you know that's just sort of how it goes when you do a judy greer podcast you got to take the good with the bad exactly exactly um so uh, <sighs> <laughs> and this is the bad well i i don't think it's completely bad i think there are there there are some aspects of lemon that i thought were pretty good i agree um but overall i'm a little sad that i've watched this movie three times now (laughs) yeah yeah i'd be sad i've only watched it twice and i'm sad even even though it is it is a a slick sub 90 uh i've still Watched it three times, and I, I don't think I'm better off for it, to be honest. No. Um, well, why don't I'm, I'm just going to uh, real quick catch everyone up on what uh, what Lemon is all about. Lemon follows Los Angeles actor Isaac Lockman's floundering attempts to regain control of his life through multiple humiliations. Ramona, his girlfriend of 10 years, is on the verge of leaving him. His equally pretentious protege, Alex, is eclipsing his own artistic success. His agent keeps finding him work on depressing medical campaigns. He searches for human connection, both from his argumentative family and a potential new romance with makeup artist Cleo. That's that's the three parts of Lemon, which is, which is which is really, if I was going to sum up why Lemon doesn't work, and in general, uh-huh. why John, uh, Jansca Bravo's uh, films do not work for me, um, she seems to sort of resent the idea that she should tell a story where things happen to characters. Yeah. <laughs> like all of her movies are about chasing this very specific, nasty, uh, pitch black comedy, adult swim meets Todd Salon's absurdist, like maybe like uh, mid aughts vice media kind of energy. Yeah. Where it is just about like, I'm going to make you gasp and then I'm going to make you gasp again. And just when you think that you have been shocked enough, I'm going to shock you again. And in chasing that, she just cannot fucking tell a story where I give a shit about what is happening at all. And when you, the way you recap the plot, like for me, Lemon is three distinct parts that have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. Um, there is the one part that is good. And every time I've watched, I watched this twice now and both times I was like, you know, there's something to this. And that is the indignities of trying to be a working actor in LA Mm -hmm. as this sort of like dark absurdist nightmare. It's, I feel like trying to be a working actor in LA 
is a scenario sort of like middle school in Welcome to the Dollhouse, where it's like, actually, it is that bad. Yeah. It doesn't feel like performative. It doesn't yeah. feel like dishonest. Actually, middle school is that shitty. Yeah. And I feel like being a, trying to be a working actor in LA, especially if you're not conventionally handsome, the way Brett Gelman is not conventionally right. handsome, like, right. I feel like that is actually just like a nightmare of indignity on top of indignity. Yeah. So, I... so, so that's one part. Mm-hmm. The next part is. Brett Gelman and his family, which doesn't seem to communicate at all with the L.A. thing. His family seems just like that's just another thing that's going on. And there's just sort of this like big stretch in the middle where there's a nightmarish Passover that happens. (laughs) Yeah. And that doesn't really have anything to do with anything. And then the third thing involves our girl, Judy Greer, Mm -hmm. which is uh, the uh, the character of of Isaac Lemon's uh, love life. And sort of his nightmarishly terrible relationship with his girlfriend who completely despises him except for one random scene where she's crying because he says that he doesn't like her and she's like again acts as if that nothing that happened previously in the movie uh, applied to that scene it was very bizarre to me and then he goes on a series of dates with a woman who never in a million trillion years would ever do any of the things that she does in the movie in terms of encouraging him to keep trying to date her none of that would ever happen in a way that's just like well, you just had to get make it so horrible that like the idea that you also had to justify it being that horrible was like, nah, I don't feel like it. So you just had horrible things happen. And those three things feel so disconnected from each other. And the character of Isaac Lemon feels so unmoored in anything that it's like it can't all be like, well, the whole thing that binds them together is it's a character study. It's like, no, it isn't. Um, and I think across her work, it is just like, how do I chase this nasty vibe? And the way I achieve it is much more is like irrelevant. I just need to chase the vibe. Yeah. Um, and when you get something like Zola, I watch it and I go, oh, well, you know, it's still kind of fun for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has good energy and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. like that, that to me is like, this is a movie with no center. Right. Well, I, I think I think with Zola also, um, it is uh, different from the rest of her work that I've seen in that uh, she was not part of writing the scripts. Uh, and the story itself is coming from like outside of, uh, you know, I, like like Bravo is not writing the scripts. She's not part of, of uh, developing that story. I don't think she has a screenwriting credit. She does have a screenwriting oh, credit. On, okay. She is one of two screenwriters. Same uh-huh. with uh, Lemon. She has a co-writer. Uh-huh. But it, 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 but it's not, it's not her and Brett Gilman. That, that no, seems like it's a, I mean, uh, her and Jeremy O'Harris, who yeah. I'm not familiar with. Um, he, he's a he's a playwright. Oh, I see. So so this, the story itself is from Asia King, who is the, the woman who wrote the original Twitter thread about Sh- this crazy uh, car trip that she had. Sure. Um, so it does. It's not something that feels like it's coming from this sort of um, insular uh, internal uh, world that, uh, that myopic might be a word. I guess, yeah. Where uh, you, you know, where uh, where she's just really kind of uh, seem, seems to be uh, spinning these monsters from this like thread of uh, I don't I don't even know what it is like like horrible white people basically right which is you know um i mean because so i so i've seen zola and lemon and then i've also seen um a handful of her shorts mm-hmm. um house that comes with a bird gregory go boom uh woman in deep and eat like i've seen all four of those and um i mean house Com- house that comes with a bird and woman in deep are both these like kind of um again not much of a plot but just these sort of like um vignettes of uh 
wealthy women who seem to be living in California and just like don't have any kind of connection and just sort of feel very like like fraught it it feels very fraught and anxious but I mean to to my recollection neither of them really go anywhere um it's just sort of like sitting with this uncomfortable vibe for the length of the short um and then you have Eat and Gregory Go Boom which are just sort of about these like misanthropic men who are misogynist and in Gregory Go goes Boom's case is also kind of like racist, I mm-hmm. think, and just sort of like about kind of sitting with that discomfort. Mm-hmm. And, and the discomfort in the case of Gregory Goes Boom of just like really rubbing your face in uh, physical disability. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, and definitely with Lemon, we will get more into the the ableism that seems to be a, a theme. Um, but yeah, the, it, it is a, she does seem to gravitate towards these characters who um don't succeed in um in navigating personal relationships who don't succeed in communicating what's going on inside them even though there's obviously some like real deep inner turmoil um and I mean, that's just my day to day. So like when I watch a movie, I kind of want to like see a dragon sure. or some shit. And, and and specifically, all of these movies, the ones I've seen at least, they exist in a sort of heightened reality where yes. people do not talk naturally. People right. do not interact with each other naturally. Right. It is not a situation where it's like you watch people struggle and it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. because it's like a realistic depiction yeah. of uncomfortable subject yeah. matter. It is a very like... Uh, surreal over-the-top approach to it all yeah which and and i will say um i think that is her strength as a director i Mm. think i think she has a very um strong interesting aesthetic like you brought up todd salons and i i think it's it it doesn't quite look like a todd salons movie but um that that sort of uh thread that runs through his movies where where things just kind of look like like a commercial for a household cleaner mm. um, where, where she kind of has the same thing going on um, where, uh, you know, w- watching this, this film a second time for this podcast. I mean, I was thinking about Todd salons just cause we kind of had that discussion, uh, but I was also kind of thinking Wes Anderson a little bit um, where she has, uh, sh- she has a, a real sense of, of mise-en-scene. Um, she's a real sense of like a, of like a, a color palette that kind of um, flows through the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like lemon has these very like faded tones that kind of looks, everything looks a bit sun washed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also there does tend to be this uh, very um, like restrained characters being a theme, very like mannered ways of speaking to each other, especially in lemon really comes up. Um, and then there's also um, this sort of uh, heightened reality, like like in Lemon, where you have Cleo's family being introduced and they all kind of get like the moment of portrait with their names underneath um, when we go to the scene at, at Cleo's family barbecue. Um, that that just was just really reminiscent to me of, of how like Wes Anderson would stage something. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think a, a key difference between Todd Salon's, if you are someone who hasn't watched any of John Scabravo's movies, but you had seen some Todd Salon's movies, uh-huh. I think the thing you're talking about in terms of just like 
everything feeling like a commercial in a Todd Salons movie. Mm-hmm. Or I, looking like a commercial. Yeah, I, I think, I feel like, yeah, looking. Um, I feel like sterility is really the thing. Yes. Like, it just feels like they live in this sort of antiseptic world and it's sort of suffocating everyone mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they, it's, it's, it's just like super oppressive how disconnected from reality everything is. Yeah. I feel like her stuff has a lot more life and energy and she's a lot more interested in moving the camera and yeah. she's a lot more interested in going for big expressionist lighting when it when it makes sense like yeah. Zola is all about energy Zola yeah. is all about like really slick editing yeah and about the camera moving and like stepping out of reality there and things is, like that there is this incredible scene in Zola which I I think is just like was just like one of my favorite moments of um of like just seeing like Bravo's directorial work where um so Zola is um a stripper and she goes on a on a road trip with another stripper that she meets to Florida and then kind of gets in over her head and and she finds out that um that the other uh stripper who she's traveled with like um she finds out that this woman turns tricks and is kind of ends up being her um chaperone mm-hmm. um as she's you know going around Tampa um you know, turning tricks. Uh, and there's a, there's a scene where they show up to an out call and uh, there's like more people there than they bargained for. And um, as, and, and so like they're in the doorway of the apartment and they're having the discussion with the John who called them. And every time the camera changes angle you angles every time the camera changes angles you see like one or two more men lounging around in the apartment and it is like the most like subtle tacit way of building Mm -hmm. fear and like it just kind of i mean i've never been in the situation of turning tricks in tampa uh, Mm -hmm. myself but i have been in a situation where no comment on my end (laughs) um (laughs) but um but like i i definitely have been in, in like situations where i'm like okay, the person who I'm talking to is making me feel unsafe. So I'm just going to like um, low key, just kind of, you know, look around me and see like what other elements there are in this environment in case shit goes down. And that's exactly the tension that's built by her camera work. And it was just like, like fireworks. So that so scene good. is actually, it's, it's sort of, for me, it's like both sides of the coin for uh-huh. Jessica Bravo, because it is a, her using her style to very effectively uh, deliver a specific kind of tone and emotion. Yeah. And it is about how she, it isn't just empty style, which I think to a certain extent, all of her films have some empty style in them, which is like, that's, I think that's just part of the whole project being so chaotic is that yeah. some moves aren't necessarily going to feel as tethered as others. Yeah. Um, so it's like, Jenska Bravo is is a director who I'm like weirdly rooting for. I don't really like any of her movies, but I'm like, yeah, at same. some point, I hope she finds material where like, any of this fucking works because like just most of like there's parts of all of them that I think work yeah but yes for sure but none of the projects work overall so there's like and that's an example of like she is she has talent yeah. she is oh, not yeah. she is not like She's without not talent yeah She's not um but the flip side of that coin is she has to be confrontational and rub your face in it mm-hmm. and they every time the camera angle changes the men it reveals are specifically large black men and their largeness and their blackness is like contrasted with the small white stripper that has agreed to turn tricks with in that uh-huh and i and it's like it's and i think it is her trying to make you uncomfortable because she is going to hit the 
the button of that racial dynamic and she is going to make you as the presumably if you're if you're okay watching a movie about the escapades of strippers you're probably think of yourself as not a super conservative person or whatever right. so she's gonna like make you as a as a comfortable person go oh no like oh but it's but it's like but black men are dangerous but they, but this situation is da, da, da. like like and i th- and i think that like that really edgy rub your face in the nastiness and like hit the taboo buttons and like she wants to get the juice and mm-hmm. and like overall she's not I like we talked about the ableism that like comes throughout these movies. Like overall, she's not particularly concerned with getting that juice in like a super responsible way Mm -hmm. is like the other thing that makes me go. Well, I think I I think for me in in that scene, the the terror was kind of or the for for me in that scene, I think the rising tension was coming from um, the how how like the more information you get about the number of people in the apartment, it just seems like they're doing something dangerous. Um you know they're doing like like sex work without really having any kind of like structure of support there Mm -hmm. so like that's kind of dangerous to begin with they're in a city they don't know they're doing an out call which also seems kind of dangerous Mm -hmm. and then it's like it just becomes increasingly obvious that they've been lied to about the situation which just kind of like like that that's what was turning on the alarm bells for me that is 100 percent correct also that scene could have played the exact same way if every single man wasn't a large black man but she makes sure to make that every single man in that in that apartment yeah. is a large black man. Yeah, and like specifically the way the things are framed, it highlights how short the woman who is there to turn tricks yeah. is. And yeah. like that, I think that is not an accident. Yeah, I think that is a purposeful choice. And I think there are times where she is talking about race relations in her movies and it feels like it like in, like in lemon. Yeah. Um, part of the thing, this movie is a, about in in as far as it's about anything which i don't think it successfully is <laughs> is it is about uh uh the relationship between jewish americans and african americans yeah. and it is about like a historically progressive uh, eth- uh you know ethnic minority in the jewish americans and sort of the um and this is, she's not the first person to observe this, but like the the maybe misguided sense of comfort they have in their ability, their in in the fact that they aren't racist or can't yeah. be racist, yeah. and like and therefore kind of, that kind of looking back at Hebrew Hammer, yeah. that, that we covered last month, where where I mean there is a little bit of back padding about like oh I've got Hanukkah and you've yeah. got Kwanzaa and that means we're in it together. Right. There's a scene. There's a scene where the Jewish guy says the N word, and it's like of course he can say that. The character in the movie says like that's not true, yeah. but like the the Jewish Jewish man who wrote it decided yeah. that that would be fine. <laughs> anyway, so like, uh, and I think that I think like parts of that exist in this movie in a way that work, but are never mm-hmm. developed on. And so by the end of the movie, it's just like find a new button to hit. You got to stop hitting the yeah. Jewish person says an inappropriate thing to a black person about yeah. how they're not racist towards black people. That stuff is so annoying. Uh, yeah. Eventually in this movie, and so like I, so like but. I don't think she is someone who is like, I'm going to make movies about race in America. I'm going to make movies that are, I think she is someone who's like, I'm going to make movies about audiences squirming. And how do I mm-hmm. get there? Any way I fucking can. I kind of, I kind of have to wonder if a lot of that comes from the fact that she knows as a black woman director mm-hmm. that she's going to be labeled as a black woman director mm-hmm. in any kind of like marketing or publicity that is done for her movies. And then she is going to get the kind of people, you know, the kind of butts in seats where it's going to be like progressive white butts who are going to see um, things like Isaac uh, bringing up a 
documentary that he saw about black women's hair and then like mansplaining black hair to Neil Long and be like, oh, I have done that. Oh, boy. I, and, and I like and I, I think that is perfectly acceptable. Like, I yes, that is the demographic of the Sundance Film Festival crowd who are going to see a lemon or something yeah. like that. And I, I think you, that those people should be needled in that way or another. It's just like. It's not supported enough elsewhere in the movie mm-hmm. that it actually feels like there's a very uh, there's like sort of a centerpiece scene in this movie where uh, the entire uh, Lemon uh, his name isn't what's his name Lockman I've been calling him Lemon because it's it makes sense <laughs> yeah well it's, I, I, I think it's supposed to be like this well, is the scene where <laughs> Die Hard steps on the glass yeah exactly um, Terminator Two I hate you <laughs> yeah exactly exactly anyway but there's like a scene uh, at Passover where everyone is um, singing this like kitschy Jewish novelty song yeah. um, and behind and it's like framed as this like musical number mm-hmm. and it's like for the proscenium it's very stagey the way she does it it's it's, yeah. a very, it's one of her more ostentatious shots in the movie and like just on their walls is just like an endless series of like African masks. And, yeah, and it's like, yeah. that is who this family is. This yeah, is who they think of themselves as, family. Um, yeah. you know, they're going to collect these things and they're going to think that that makes them like culture. The fact that they like own some of this yeah. other cultures thing or whatever. Pa- I have to say Passover Seder with the family who plays the dad, Fred Melamed, Fred, Fred fucking Melamed. Fred Melamed's so fucking great. <laughs> Jewish dad, extraordinaire and anytime you need a jewish dad in a movie you get fucking fred melamed and he's he's great um also yeah that the uh the family scene david pamer oh my uh, god. very funny oh in that oh my god he's so funny in that in that that scene is like the best scene in the whole movie it's, it's which which specific moment uh, of a million matzo balls okay yeah, yeah, yeah i mean i mean the whole thing is really good because it's it's like it's like you have this this family gathering which is really tense um, so you, you have, uh, you have these tense family dynamics, which are just, you know, a typical kind of family, um, you know, uh, uh, sibling rivalry and, and, uh, the parents kind of being sick of each other and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and then, uh, on top of that, you have Isaac's former childhood psychologist who's going through a divorce and he's very depressed and they they invite him along to the Seder and he's played by David Pamer and then um so this all all this family tension kind of culminates in like a really uncomfortable fight over dinner and then it swings into them all gathered around the piano singing a million matzo balls um and you kind of see uh, who the characters are and how they're kind of dealing with the the fallout of their arguments. Um, just like like you know, you have uh, um, like Fred Melamed and um, Rhea Perlman playing uh, his mother, who who are just like you know what we fought and and we're over it and it's not a problem and now we're 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 singing with the family and they're just kind of you know dancing around and then. Um, you have uh, Martin Starr playing his brother, who's just sort of like sulking in the background, and you have uh, you you have Isaac in the, in the foreground, who's just sort of uh, ha- has this sort of like like withdrawn blankness, which kind of follows him through a lot of the movie. Um, but then you get David Pamer, who just gets this uh, like solo singing one of the verses, and he just puts his heart and soul into it and he he's just really giving it a hundred percent. And you can see Fred Melamed behind him on the piano, who is just like he looks genuinely delighted with this performance. Um, and it's, it's just this like one 
moment of like authenticity and joy yeah. in this like incredibly difficult movie and it's a really nice breather I, I i think structurally where it comes in the movie is great and i i like the way all the parts of it that whole passover sequence of the movie that uh-huh. like sort of middle 20 minutes yeah. uh, of the film i could not fucking stand it because it's it rough. is it's so so when we were talking about how are we going to talk about this movie or whatever, one of the ideas we talked about was the the idea of like the quote unquote unlikable protagonist. Yeah. Which it's like if there's any uh, if there if there's any poster boy for unlikable protagonist, Isaac in this film yes. is just like every single bad quality, no good qualities. Every single scene is about how pathetic and horrible he is. Yeah, and, he, and he's a very and and on top of that, he's like this very um, sort of by 2017 extremely typical uh like indie dramedy lead where he like he's very taciturn and he's very awkward and it's like okay i've seen this a million times before mm-hmm. so like when you talk about directors and we we brought them up already but when you talk about directors who are sort of known for this sort of thing Todd Salons mm-hmm. is sort of like right at the top of the list yeah. like he is the most misanthropic the most cynical yeah. the like just darkest blackest humor that has ever existed on screen yeah. like you know like 3 out of the Horrible top 5 things happen to his character 3 out of the, those top five horrible dark uh, comedies are by Todd Salons. Yeah. Todd Salons, and this isn't, I I don't think he is equally good across his whole career, but like the height Mm -hmm. of Todd Salons, he understands that like hostility is a rainbow. There are (laughs) so many ways that people can be hostile to each other. Mm. If you look at happiness, every performance in that movie, nearly every performance in that movie is incredible. And it's because every character is a really distinct approach to their hostility towards everyone else. Yeah. Everyone is horrible, but in a unique way. Yeah. And like, it's, when you think about all of the things that are contained in happiness, and frankly, like I'm not going to describe some of the worst things that happen in happiness yeah. on this podcast because I don't need to, and I don't want to subject the listener to that who doesn't know. It, but yeah. like that's a that is a rough movie. Definitely check out why does the dog die before you watch that movie because it's like oh, every yeah. content warning. Yes, like like really, I'm I'm not kidding on that. So, um, but I think the cruelest thing mm-hmm. that happens in happiness is when Lara Flynn Boyle leans into her sister and goes you really should write a novel because her sister, her sister is like sort of like, Oh, you know, I'm a housewife. It's so cute that you, ha- you're, you don't have a family like I do. And I yeah. probably could do what you do, but who knows what you could do. Like she's just being hostile yeah. in like really passive aggressive way. Yeah. And Lara Flynn Boyle, who is hates the world and everyone in it. She yeah. is a total black void of, of happy, of like, of, of pleasure. Yeah. She, she's, she's found success through writing this, like this, like dark provocative poetry. Mm-hmm. And she's just, and she hates herself for yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she says that, that uh, her friends ask her why she doesn't live in New York and why she lives in New Jersey. And she's like, they don't understand. Mm-hmm. I'm living in a state of irony. <laughs> uh, and, th- and that really sums up like who she is as a person. And she like butter wouldn't melt in her mouth, leans in at this lunch and goes, you should really write a novel. And like Lara Flynn Boyle could be fucking astounding at times. And this is one of those instances. And it's like, that is such a different thing than every character says the meanest thing they can think of at every given moment, which is what the entire 25 minute stretch of the Passover sequence is to me. It's just like all of those characters are so horrible to each other in completely unbelievable ways. And like, it's just this like really blunt instrument and and eventually, if you keep swinging the bat the exact same way every time, I'm going to block it because I see yeah. it coming. Yeah. The 1500th time someone says something racially inappropriate in the same way, right. like it's not going to shock me anymore. But like Todd Salons, he comes in with the dagger on the side and you're like, Jesus Christ, I didn't even know you had that <laughs> knife in your hand. Yeah. And like that to me is like 
why this is this can often feel so clumsy and not work in the way that some of those other films do. Yeah, yeah, I I think you're right. Um, as 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 awful as these characters can be, there, there's not a lot of manipulation going on, and that's that's like one of the most interesting tools that there can be in, in mm-hmm. the in in making horrible characters work is is how they they bend other people to their will. Um, but this is just very much um, either someone saying something that's um, directly hostile or is uh, sort of socially maladapted, and then. On, on top of that, I mean, kind of bringing in because uh, be- because race does become a factor um, during the Seder uh, where where Isaac's nephew is black and uh, his brother uh, kind of scoffs when he's reading the four questions during the Seder dinner. And that kind of becomes a whole thing. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, you have the character of... Uh, the the nephew's nanny who's latina and i think the actress does a good job but it's it's very stereotypical where she's just like like the only thing that really comes out of her mouth is these like anecdotes about how difficult things were in her country and to, and just sort of like very like grim stories about like domestic violence and stuff like that that just seems very like yeah, like, 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 very, like, oh, I'm just here to represent, like, another part of, of the world and kind of, you know, I'm just sort of this scion and I don't really have any kind of personality beyond that and being a nanny. Um, the film itself um, starts with this image where it's a it's a TV image, like, like it's, a um, you know, Isaac watching TV and it's. I don't know if it's a fictional film or a documentary or what, but it's like it's like a a, a woman with wearing like a um, a, a headscarf that I, I think is supposed to you know signify that she's African and mm-hmm. she's um, sort of giving this interview about um, some tragedy that happened in to her family. It, it feels like she is describing a, like a genocide in a yeah. yeah like a genocide in an unnamed African yeah, country. Yeah, you, and you you never find out what's going on because it's just sort of like an image on a TV screen that gets turned off pretty quickly, but it, I don't, I, I feel, I feel like the intent there is to kind of set some kind of tone because otherwise, why would you make it the very first thing that people see and like linger on it mm-hmm. for long enough to like, for it to really sink in. Um, and then kind of go into the life of this guy who is struggling, but like I, I fucking, I don't know. He's yeah. like, he's like, he's like a trust fund kid who lives in Los Angeles. Like, okay. Um, right. It feels like, again, it feels, and again, this is like, I'm the white guy telling the black director that she is being like racially irresponsible or whatever. Yeah. So I'll just like cop to that is genuinely how I feel is like, it feels ir- like a way too big a fucking hammer to just be like, people in Los Angeles are petty and don't know what real problems are. And it's like that sort of thing can be done like so much differently. And again, it's like if that, if that is like one note in a symphony that is all about the ways that like uh, race sort of intersects with all these people's Uh lives and it's like a fully thought out idea, Uh then like you can go back to it and judge it as part of that. But I just, I really don't think Lemon has that going on. Like, I really think it's just the one thing over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's so much that um, is sort of hinted at as like other things going on in this world, but you don't get enough 
of a sense of what they are or why they're happening where there's any kind of weight there um like to to kind of compare it again to, to happiness um like you you have a jane adams character joy uh who seems to be very directionless and not really know what she wants to do with her life despite being you know 30 or whatever and you but know, to be fair, she's 30 and still living with her parents. So it's like yeah. a little different than just a, just a, like someone in a dead end job yeah, who doesn't, yeah, but, who isn't married yet. But, but yeah, but, but it's, it's, yeah, it's like, so it's like, she's still dating and, and she doesn't really know like what she wants to do with her life. So you learn that you learn that she's sort of a struggling musician and that's not something that like comes up that much over the course of the film. And it doesn't really have like a huge effect on her story arc, but at least it feels, it feels kind of like pertinent to learning who this person is yeah. and to learning like, like, like why she does like, like, like why she does the things she does and why she interacts with people the way that she does. Like it's really, she has hope. Yeah. 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 Like she, she and, is and in that movie to hope. So it makes her more vulnerable to the, to the cruelty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, she's like, like you can kind of see through her music that it's like, she's, she's the one who's like kind of, resisting this universe that her like you know evil demiurge creator todd salons has built around her and, and it feels like like she's the one who's like struggling to get out of the but then but then in lemon you just have so much that's kind of going on on the sidelines that just seems to be there for like weird set dressing almost where you have like like i mean to go back to to isaac's family where you you have like his sister who is very pregnant um and who uh has a, a son who's a different racial identity than her and you never see her partner and she's really just there to i i mean and she's in more scenes with isaac than just the satyr but like to like to what end like 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 and and she's like constantly on the phone arguing with like caterers but you never learn a damn thing about her can i can i say something uh-huh. i don't know which of us is right i thought the thing Janska bravo was doing uh-huh. was that her partner is rosa but she treats rosa like a nanny i don't know if there's a line of dialogue that definitively says one way or another if i'm right or you're right but that is how i have read this okay. film is that like Maybe. there are certain things rosa does with the kid like she just sort of like makes decisions that override um right. Uh, what Ruthie wants to do right. in a way yeah. uh, that like makes me think that she is the other mother and that they are lesbians who have adopted this child. And maybe, yeah. I, I, I or, guess, or I guess, I guess, I guess like given that she's about... pregnant, maybe they are, they're lesbians who have, you know, uh, like, gotten like, an artificial like, yeah, insemination yeah, yeah. for, you know, um, but that, that is how I read the movie was that uh, Rosa is the partner who huh. is just sort of like another punching bag. Cause she gets treated by everyone as if she's an Annie. That makes that movie a million times sadder. <laughs> God damn. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, she really just like. I mean, honestly, I don't think it changes the movie much either way. Well, no, 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 but I guess like I guess like those characters and that dynamic. Like, I mean, thinking about her. If I was invested being, like, in those characters, partners. yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. You were invested because it's like it's like there's just no connective tissue or right. I, I think kind of even um, even when I desperately want there to be like with Gillian Jacobs' character, yes. the best part of the movie. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, kind of, kind of going back to what you were you were saying, where there's like this real sense of like authenticity and groundedness with with how, uh, how much of a slog it must be to be like a working actor in L.A. and the like the the commercial shoots and the auditions that you see him on, it's like oh he's doing like embarrassing medical commercials, and it, it, I I just feel like I've seen that done better. 
Uh, but the acting class that he teaches, that is the comedic backbone of this movie. Mm-hmm. Those scenes are fucking hilarious. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you have you have Jillian Jacobs and Michael fucking Sarah um, doing this scene from uh, Anton Chekhov's The Seagull. And uh, Isaac absolutely worships the ground that Michael Sarah's character Alex walks on and has nothing but contempt for poor Tracy, who is doing a fine job. I, I, I the thing that I read, and I think there's some subjectivity here, um, uh-huh. but like for me, the the joke is that both Michael Sarah and Gillian Jacobs are giving bad amateur theater performances. Yeah. They are both giving sort of patently false. Like we hear Michael Sarah's actual voice, and it's like so different. And it's yeah. not like oh, he's doing a Russian accent. He it's is just... doing a theater guy voice. Oh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. And she also comes across as untalented in a way that's like because it's Gillian Jacobs you know that if she was trying to play it as someone who is good at acting she would be delivering this differently because you've seen her be good at acting yeah I I think I think she is a lot more sincere in her attempts than he is because because the way that that they're both students I should say yeah yeah they're both students although you Alex at least says that he's getting work like like he says that he's gonna be going um going to Europe I I he talks about this movie that, that he's gotten a part in and the way that he's talking about like going to Denmark I'm I think it's trying to suggest that he's gonna be in a Lars von Trier film <laughs> that's kind of how I was interpreting it um but then again also like he just has these ridiculous stories and comes across as like a huge phony and yeah. a huge liar he looks like someone who saw my dinner with Andre yeah. and worshiped the ground that Andre Gregory yes. walked on and yeah. said that is the lifestyle yes. I want to lead and I and, he, and here's the thing that like really works to me about mm-hmm. the sort of Hollywood section Mm -hmm. of Lemon, which is like, to be an artist, you must be pretentious. It doesn't matter what kind of art you are making. Uh The idea that you are going to create something and you say, I think other people should see this too. It takes a little ego. It takes some ego. It takes some pretension. It takes some self-confidence. You have to buy your own bullshit a little bit. Yeah. And so like, you, you you have to take that risk and step out into that world mm-hmm. and say, like, this is something of value. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing inherently, like, embarrassing or shameful about stepping out into the world and saying, this is something I have made and it has value, mm-hmm. regardless of how much value the thing you have made has. There is, some, there is something noble about that. And mm-hmm. then that conflicting with the way that LA is all about perception and yeah. all about stomping out art and all about crushing those kinds of dreams and everything. Yeah. It would create the kind of person like Michael Sarah who has to do an Andre Gregory cosplay his whole fucking right. life right. because that's how he can like mentally cope with what is happening in his world. Yeah, yeah. And then and then you you find out pretty quickly that um he's Isaac's pet student because Isaac sees him as like a younger version of himself like uh like I mean I mean they they just <laughs> <laughs> just get so self-indulgent with uh sort of um the 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 talk back after they do the scene where Michael Sarah just kind of goes off on these like navel gazy dialogues about how he's been doing a lot of animal work with his character and shit like that. Oh my god, it was oh god. I, I mean I, I don't know if it's just like I've been in enough acting classes or I've never really met anyone quite like that, but you also haven't done acting classes in LA or whatever, you know, that's like you true. haven't, you haven't done that's it in true. New York. You haven't like met the like trust fund hipsters necessarily. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here in Chicago, everyone's like got it, got it, got pockmarks in a day job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. That's the name of a book. <laughs> um, 
yeah but 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 there is kind of that that sense of like uh someone who is like way too confident talking about something that's like so ineffable uh and then you have like like Julian Jacobs who is just this like uh who this like bastion of like humility and sincerity and is just getting shat on the entire time uh and <laughs> and not only and like this again like John Janska Bra- problems too well, Janska Janska Bravo the filmmaker uh-huh. I like I like her the best in the ways that she uses the camera and the editing to sideline Gillian Jacobs' yes. character, where she keeps cutting her, G- Gillian Jacobs is keeps trying to tell people that she's going through some kind of crisis, and yeah. then mid sentence it will cut to a completely different yes. scene, yes. and that shit is funny to me every fucking time. <laughs> yeah, th- yeah, I, I think I think if this was like another short that was just about the acting class, it mm-hmm. would be like 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 the the star in her crown and like if you made an entire feature where instead of this like totally unbelievable makeup artist played by Nia Long where it's like you look like fucking Nia Long in LA you know what to do when creeps hit on you and and she like comes in like she's a fucking hayseed from Kansas who's never had any male attention who's yeah it's like and so she's just like well I guess I have to go on a date with this guy and it's like no you don't you're Nia Long like yeah yeah. um, but like if this was a movie that just focused on this like sort of three this sort of like hate triangle between Gillian Jacobs and Michael Sarah yeah. and uh, Brett Gelman yeah that would be great I would really oh, be into yeah. that yeah. and like I, there is this sort of Lebowski thing going on where like when someone gets shit on they shit on someone else in the same way mm-hmm. like the things he does in class someone else is doing to him during a photo shoot for one of his like right um Megan Mullally playing the director of this uh, photo shoot or whatever yeah yeah and it's like you see this there's this like whole dynamic going on in LA and the whole the movie starts off with the line like this has been entirely filmed and photographed in the city you know in city yeah. of Los Angeles California that's yeah. like a title card before yeah. you get anything in this movie so like it makes you think oh this is going to be a movie about LA mm-hmm. and that idea of LA as this like never ending cycle of abuse where people's dreams keep getting raised just so they can be shit on again and yeah. everyone are like crabs in a bucket pulling each other down yeah like that to me is a compelling movie that she can make because she made a third of it yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but then she just decided not to yeah yeah then yeah then she's just kind of pulling in um the, the family dynamics and the relationship dynamics, uh, which I guess is, is kind of the, the third uh, pillar of uh, of misanthropy that this movie is built on, is the relationship between Isaac and his girlfriend Ramona, played by Judy Greer. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have this relationship between Isaac and Ramona. Um, they live together. They've been together for 10 years. Um, she has a, a career that seems to be a lot more like stable. Uh, she works in like, uh, like she sells medical equipment or something like that. But um, you know, she's very busy um, with her career. Um, so it seems to be suggesting that uh, she's more stable mm-hmm. and more like professionally ambitious maybe than he is. Um, it also is maybe implying that not all those business trips are business trips because she it's like it kind true. of implies she's a serial cheater who yeah yeah um, so I mean their relationship is on its its very last legs uh, she is obviously cheating on him as you said and and she's about to leave um, the other dynamic that's important to their relationship uh, as it turns out is that uh, she's blind. Um, 
and I I think she's not the she's not the only character in the movie with a disability, um, but she is the the one that we kind of spend the most time with, and I think as we were alluding to before um, with sort of the ableism that's kind of popping up in this movie, um, you have Ramona as sort of the the prime example of I. I felt like uh, like a character who is disabled to for the sole purpose of ratcheting up the discomfort of the interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, from a practical perspective, uh, she seems to have cataracts, uh, and I don't it, it, that I mean that that to me was just like really distracting because I was like she works in the medical field and she seems to like you know, have like, like a stable job and enough money and it's like, it's contemporary day. So like cataract surgery is not a big deal for most people. It, it was just like so distracting to me that it, I, I don't know if it was just the sort of thing of like, oh, it's not enough for her to have sunglasses and a white cane. We have to give her these like milky contacts too. So she looks like she's going to like tell a prophecy in a Lord of the Rings movie or something. Um, but I mean, that to me was just like very distracting. Um, and their relationship is, as you said before, just horrible. Uh, and I think that uh, her being blind kind of uh ends up being a way it's just like like instead instead of that really informing her character and and being like a part of of who she is as a character it just kind of becomes this like um this this device in their relationship for uh isaac to be like really disrespectful of her boundaries and sometimes just like outright emotionally abusive Mm -hmm. um like he he does this thing i i I, their relationship made me so uncomfortable because it's like you have this guy who where it's like oh he's like really like maladjusted and socially awkward and he's always saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing but it's like they've been living together and there's just like this constant thing where he is just like quietly standing and watching her and not really like moving or making any kind of noise or anything and there was just something very like pointed in in how he is watching her where it didn't feel like it didn't feel like comfort and it didn't feel like oh we're so used to each other that we don't have to acknowledge each other it it felt like he was trying to see how long he could go without her noticing that he was that he's like in her vicinity and that just felt so um fucked up in a like fucked up it's fucked that's a fucked up thing uh and i guess it was supposed to be played as humor and it just i wasn't i wasn't there for it i i mean i'll be honest like i think this is a movie that on the whole is sort of ungrounded and untethered to real life. And like just constantly throughout the movie, things happen for that feel very arbitrary. Yeah. And I felt like most of everything having to do with Judy Greer and maybe just because we have a Judy Greer podcast. And so I was thinking about her character a little more Uh like, 
I don't think anything about her character is grounded in anything. I to me it is she is a she is abusive to him because she's serially cheating and gaslighting and dismissive and like just being shitty to him all the time. Uh-huh. And he's like very needy and he's very clearly in pain all the time. But by, by the way she treats him and she just dismisses it out of hand the entire movie. And I think it was just like, but she's blind, so like. Again, it's that like uh, uh-huh. identity politics, like uh, uncomfortable thing where it's like, what if the shitty partner was disabled? Then then what's the dynamic? Yeah, I do agree. There's a little bit of um, uh, what's his name and dial him for murder where it's like, is Isaac just sort of like trying to plot it? Like, is he going to kill her in this scene? Is it, this... it really does is... come across like that. And, and I mean, and then there is I mean, there is a scene where, where they're breaking up. And I mean, she's I, I mean, I think I think you're right where, where she it starts out with her like sobbing and. It's, it's entirely little... disengaged and unemotional the entire rest of the movie, every other scene, but in that one scene she's sobbing. Yeah. Okay. Which I mean, I I, I but but then he he kinda um makes it even worse by basically threatening to kill her. Right. I mean, I I think the idea is he is just like so pathetic. It's like any number of things that he is threatening to do in any in over the course of this movie that he can't follow through on because he's just like so powerless and pathetic. Yeah. I. I but it, but it is also just like I, I th- we I are think... going to hit the domestic violence button. Yeah. And to yeah. again to make you squirm. Well, and yeah, I don't because yeah. I don't care which of, on this control panel I hit as long as it ends with you squirming. Yeah. Yeah. And and he yeah. So so he kind of he kind of reacts to her say well he keeps saying to her you know you have to tell me you're unhappy you have to tell me you want to end this relationship and finally she breaks down and says i want to end this relationship and then he turns around and says you know i could just kill you uh and goes into some detail and it's i i felt triggered by it just because of Mm -hmm. my stuff Mm -hmm. um and then he kind of um goes from there into telling her that he's settled for her and is just like it's it's you know you have this character who just kind of goes from like oh he's socially awkward to like oh he's he's uh doing really horrible things to the people in his life and that's not the only horrible thing that he does but that was just sort of because of my stuff like the the example that kind of stood out to me sure um you know we're we're and 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 it was funny because like like we watched happiness right and in happiness you have and other todd salon's movies you you have characters where it's like they're not just like being horrible to each other through their like words and these sort of like passive aggressive and and like roundabout kind of things like 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 they're like like actively physically damaging each other. People commit crimes in Todd yeah, Salon's movies yeah, towards like, each other. Yeah, yeah, like 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 people people enact like physical trauma on each other in Todd Salon's movies, um, and there's but in like in a Salon's movie it works in a way that it doesn't here and i, I th- i'm still trying i'm still puzzling on like why. I, I just think t- todd salons is a better and again i don't think that is true of every todd salons movie i've seen i think he can That's get true. arbitrary and chaotic as well but yeah, i think we, in well, general yeah, we specifically we specifically rewatched happiness and welcome to the dollhouse right. which are I, I i think his two best that i've seen i, I think largely considered his yeah. the peak of his career yeah um I think Todd Salons is just a more controlled and talented screenwriter mm. and he just understands how components of a film work together. I think like yeah. happiness is sort of the Todd Salons epic. Like that is yeah. like he is throwing everything but like it is all just like really delicately balanced on each other and depending yeah. on how you feel about Dylan Baker maybe it isn't balanced but like <laughs> but like a lot of that movie 
is just like he understands what he's doing in every single scene. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it, see, it feels like a f- series of vignettes is not really an issue because right. it all works in concord with each other. And I think this is a extremely chaotic movie. I think Jessica Bravo is a very chaotic filmmaker. Yeah. And I don't think she has full control over mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you are that chaotic and you are that arbitrary and you are doing things based on a vibe mm-hmm. and you're not really like making those kinds of choices uh, with consideration to everything else. Mm -hmm. That's how you get a movie like Lemon. And that's how you get like a relationship in the center of it. Like the one between Brett Gelman and Judy Greer. We're like just seemingly no part of it makes any sense. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and, and I do think it was that disconnect from reality that made that, that's that whole thing less disturbing to me personally, but that's also like with a different, with a different set of, you know, history or whatever. Sure. Sure. But, um, it's if, as a Judy Greer movie, you go, you look at Judy Greer, the actor, and mm-hmm. you look at the the comedies, you know, on TV and in film that she's like associated with, and you go, she can be in a kid's movie as the mom who's, you know, sweet as sugar and twice as nice. Right, right. But like there is a darkness and an acerbic edge to the Judy Greer thing. Like yeah. when we talked about Eric Lewer, we talked about how that felt like sort of an ultimate Judy Greer movie in a way. Yeah, she's good at being like quirky. And, and it's, it's like there's a quirkiness, there's a, sar- there's a sarcasm there that that does um, add more there's a There's a sense of danger, a bitterness. Yeah. Like she, there's all these different things or whatever. And so you look at a movie like Lemon and you go, well, this is, this is, you know, in theory, this is a movie where that can really work. And mm-hmm. instead, it's a movie where it really fucking doesn't. And yeah. like, even to the extent that anything works in this movie, nothing involving Judy Greer works for me. No, no, I, I have to say the same. Um, of Yeah, of the of the three, uh, you know, you kind of splitting it up into these like th- this like three ring circus. Yeah, yeah. I think that's of, a great way to put it. Um, the the relationship. Uh, between um, Isaac and Ramona is definitely the weakest, the mm-hmm. weakest part. And again, like Neil Long gets hit on by Isaac while he's just like open mouth chewing mackerel. Yeah, like yeah, she he is in, the, in a professional setting. He like, he is the face of uh, what's what's the yeah. So so he he's uh, he's booked um, uh, a, a a commercial where he's the face of hepatitis C. It's like a modeling gig, basically. Yeah. He's going to be on billboards and stuff. Yeah, but but they're making him look like all you know, you know, sickly and mm-hmm. in despair, and talking about like how his facial hair is so terrible looking, and um, it yeah, it's it's not it's not funny. No, I mean, I mean, it's like I like, Megan, like I think Megan Mullally is funny. Yeah. Yeah, she's fine. She's just she's sort of fine. like openly drinking a bottle of vodka as she's taking photos. Yeah, and like and like, and like affecting this like British accent and 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 she's that might kinda... be the thing that abused me most is that like yeah, she, is that like... it's the kind of chaotic movie where the flip side of that is Megan Mullally could make a chaotic choice like doing a chaotic like doing a British yeah, accent yeah. for no fucking reason. And, and and you have you have another another movie. Uh, this could be this could pair with Addicted to Fresno where John Daly shows up as a as a weirdo. Um, He's 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 like the uh, the neighbor slash landlord. Uh, mm-hmm. and he asks Isaac to look after his birds while he's out of town, and but the birds die. But a- anyway, when Isaac initially asks out Neil Long, uh-huh. he's just like openly masticating like mackerel. Yeah, and he says three racially inappropriate things in a row or something. Yeah. And, and then, then immediately follows it up with, can you give me your telephone number? Yeah. Which is like the creepiest way any man has ever asked a woman for her number yeah. is, can you give me your telephone number? Yeah. And then they go on like three dates. Like the idea that A, she dates him. B, 
she leaves a date early because it's not working, but then invites him to her house to meet her to meet her son, kid, who's like and eight, then yeah. invites him to a family barbecue yeah. after that. Yeah, he kind of he kind of strong arms his way into being invited to the family barbecue, where where she says, where, where he's like, oh, I'd like to see you this weekend. They're talking on the phone. And he's like, I want to see you this weekend, and she says, oh, I can't. I have a family event that I'm going to, and he says, oh, does that mean I'm not invited or something like really shitty and passive aggressive? And then she invites him. And it's- the reason he's able to strong arm her is because she even and answers the phone in the first place which no she doesn't that's not something that would happen <laughs> she, she gives him so much leniency this I, isn't th- like a he's a loser but there's like something kind of endearing about how like no. he is hostile after john so so he's taking care of john daly's birds and the birds die because of course they do because that's the kind of movie this is and he calls Neil Long, Cleo, he calls her and he says, I killed two birds. And her response is, oh, I didn't know you had birds. Like, like in what universe do you respond to someone who you've been on like two dates with and give them that kind of grace? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not, th- that just made no sense. To it's me. just like, it's one of those things where it's like, you don't need to make movies where people act the way people act. There are plenty yeah. of ways you can have heightened, bizarre, surreal circumstances and yeah. people talk in strange ways and maybe do things that you wouldn't think they would normally do. There's tons of ways to justify that. But if you're specifically going for social discomfort, it has to somehow resemble social dynamics in the universe yeah. the audience lives. Yeah, where, yeah, where I, I was, I just, I just kept trying to find the inroad to to why those choices were made and i'm thinking well is she is she afraid of him is she feeling like she has to coddle him because he's the talent and she doesn't want to get in trouble with the job like i was just trying to think of like all these kind of ways to explain why she keeps letting him back into her life but like i really shouldn't have to do that as the audience no no (laughs) i mean so another another film that kind of came to mind um when i was watching lemon uh is greta gerwig's ladybird uh because it something that i really like about that movie is you you can see where um a lot of the supporting characters have things that are going on where you just kind of get these like little glimpses of their internal lives but it's never really explored just because like the, the main character is a 17 year old girl who's like trying to figure out her own identity. And she's like so focused on herself and her own journey that like that, like she thinks of herself as like the leading character. And like technically she is. But you kind of see where like everyone else in the movie has their own story where they're the leading character. And I and that's one of my favorite things about that movie. I think it works beautifully. And then here you kind of have the same thing where you're like, what the fuck is up with Cleo? Why is she acting that way? And what the fuck is up with with his sister and her nanny wife? What what is going on there? But y- you get nothing. And instead of instead of um, feeding the film, it just becomes distracting and aggravating. Mm-hmm. It just it, and 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 it, I don't know if I could really say why one works so well and the other one doesn't. I mean, I so I I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, of this episode Alain Goulardi, who, which is not his name, but again, that's how I'm pronouncing this French director's name, the right. director of Stranger by the Lake and Nobody's Hero, and my favorite film of his, Staying Vertical. And Staying Vertical is a movie that exists in this heightened surrealist uh, sort of bizarre 
like alternate universe where people are constantly doing things that they wouldn't actually do in real right. life. But it has this super rigorous emotional logic because uh-huh. it is all tied to the exact same feeling which is it is about a screenwriter who is procrastinating and he is afraid of work and he wants to avoid his deadline at all costs right and the sort of cosmic again cosmic screwball comedy that spirals out of his aversion to work is so fucking relatable (laughs) that every ridiculous thing that happens as a result of that has this really rigorous emotional grounding one of my favorite movies of the past 10 years is Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh-huh. Yorgos Lanthimos. Sure. His movie got nominated for a whole bunch of Oscars yeah. or whatever. Like, yeah. Yorgos Lanthimos. <laughs> not a fan of people. Not a fan of people. Very successful art house director who has made his bread and butter on these misanthropic surrealist comedies yeah. where people don't actually act the way they do in real life. Right. But in the ones that really work, um, like, they do because they have this, like, really rigorous emotional grounding yeah where things exist because they do feel correct and if if you know if chanska bravo made lemon and she feels that way about the movie she made like well then i'm glad that she achieved what she was going for but like as an audience member i do not feel that rigorous uh backbone to the proceedings right yeah things things do feel uh you know as we've been saying just sort of uh more elements in her palette of making an audience discomfortable, uh, of making the audience uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't, I agree with you uh, where I think, I think sort of a, a sense of follow through and, and rigor isn't really present in Lemon the way it is in uh, these other movies that we're, that we're talking about. I have made a decision. What's that? I would love to go the rest of my life never talking about Lemon again. <laughs> Uh, I will support you in your decision and validate your emotions. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, oh, we have judicialization. I'm not fully done, but okay. No, no, no. Let's no. step away from lemon. How about yeah. that? Okay. Yeah. Let, let's move on to uh, the other segment. The other segment. So, uh, Patrick, y- you have a little bit of a surprise for me uh, yes. as far as the segment is what I've been led to understand. That's correct. Okay. So, um, I don't want to talk about lemon. Uh-huh. You know, we need to talk about Kevin. This is the yes. B-side. I don't want to talk about lemon. Okay. So I decided, what if instead we just taste-tested a bunch of lemonades? So uh, I did tell you about this. We both brought we both brought two lemonades. Right. Um, we have fun little names for these segments. Uh, I bet you can probably guess what this one is. So I have written the name of the segment in this envelope. Would you? I'm going to hand you this envelope uh-huh. now. Would you tell me what you think the name of this segment is and then open that envelope and read the title of the segment? Mm, I think it's uh, When Life Gives You Lemon. Like my Johnny Carson impression? I, I love it. Oh, it's, thank you. It's not, quite, I was, it's not quite the Karnak bit. Karnak, oh. he does the setup and then the punchline is in the envelope. Oh, but, okay. Right, right, but right. It, but I, nonetheless. It is When Life Gives You Lemons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So when life gives you lemons, but in this case, it's more like when Reg, the uh, person who schedules 96 Greers gives you lemon, then we will taste test lemonade. I made homemade lemonade. Oh, I love homemade lemonade. And I have a Aldi lemonade flavored water beverage. Uh Uh-huh. You have brought Simply Lemonade. Yes. And you have, what's this magnesium thing? Yeah, uh, I use a powdered magnesium supplement to help me sleep at night. Mm -hmm. uh, And it is lemon flavored. So it's kind of like a lemonade. So I'm going to walk you through a little bit of my bedtime process in 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 the mix. Excellent. 
All right, so after a brief edit, we got our four drinks all ready. Um, I have these uh, cards here. What we're going to do is uh -huh. after every taste we do, we are going to rank them. Our, we're going to rate them on a scale of one to ten. Okay. Um, so let's start off with the homemade lemonade. Okay. I'm really looking forward to this because uh, you were making it earlier and I could, I could smell the lemon and I was getting really excited. Um, thank you. And so this is uh, real lemons, freshly squished, and water and cane sugar? That's that's correct. I've never made lemonade before in my life, and this is the first fresh lemonade I've ever made. Yeah. Well, cheers. Just a little on the sweet side for my preferences. Okay. But... I did do a little taste test, and it initially came out a little on the sour side for mine, so I mm -hmm. adjusted some things, but <laughs> I, I really like that. I'm going to give that an eight. Okay, I'll give it a I'll give it a seven. Okay, we'll write this um, down. But I mean, yeah, nothing nothing wrong with a with a refreshing, freshly squeezed lemonade. All right, and then now we have um, simply lemonade. Um, you see it a lot in the in the cooler at Walgreens, or if you're like our Walgreens, the like dystopian space age screen with the products on it. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's your, it's your typical like, you know. Just kind of getting it, getting it with a quick breakfast, not from concentrate, all natural, made by some corporation, simply lemonade. Mm. It's watery. It's like, it's more it watery. It is. It does. It doesn't have, um, it's, it's, it's funny drinking this after the freshly squeezed lemonade. It's like, it, it should, it should have the lemon in quotes. Yeah. Um, it's sort of suggesting lemon, but it's it doesn't have like that that full flavor that that the um, freshly made stuff does. Yeah, I'm gonna give that a six point five. Yeah, I think I think I'm actually gonna bump you up to an eight. Oh, thank you very much. Um, relative to the simply lemonade. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. I think I'll give it like a six. I'm really not very. You want to know something funny? I was trying to prep for this. I was trying to get different things. Uh -huh. Minute Maid. You can't find it anywhere. Really? Wasn't it at Walgreens? Wasn't it CVS? Huh. Um. So what do you have? What do you have next? So next, I brought in it was the thing that Aldi did have was Pure Aqua Lemonade Flavored Water Beverage. Which what is the difference between lemonade, which is mostly water, right. and a lemonade flavored water beverage? Oh, I do not know. Probably even less lemon. This has five calories. It is caffeine-free, which is very good yeah, it for is lemonade. Very yellow. <laughs> Disturbingly so for something that's a water beverage. Remember that one shot in Zola? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, with that in mind, <laughs> that is oh. very bizarre. Oh, God. Oh, that aftertaste is like, oh, it's some kind of like artificial sweetener it is extremely Trash. artificial you know what's funny is Ugh. i've this is a liter bottle and i've actually had some of this uh -huh. uh, previously and i was thinking like you know this isn't so bad it doesn't taste like lemonade but it's fine and then tasting it after tasting two real lemonades yeah boy that is something strange I, it's a good thing they make it that yellow because otherwise you might forget what it's supposed to taste like it's not very citric oh god i'm gonna give that like a Three. I think it's a four from me. I think it's drinkable, but uh, pretty bad. And now for our final one, you brought in... <laughs> Remind me again what this is. Okay, so this is uh, this is a magnesium supplement. Ooh. Um, so it is... Well, it's raspberry lemon, technically. It's a, 
instead of um instead of taking a capsule like i was because I, I take magnesium before i go to bed it helps you fall asleep and you don't um get that sort of uh melatonin hangover if you've ever taken a melatonin supplement so my psychiatrist actually recommended uh magnesium to me and it, it works like a charm for me um so i switched over uh from capsules to uh powder um so like i uh just sort of making a a, a little a little drink um so so we're gonna uh, invite you into my little my little my little bedtime ritual hooray um, I, I so, gotta tell you right right now it's it's just powder in a glass and yeah, it looks yeah. really well, I'm, appetizing. I'm make, it, make it right in front of you. So so I, I took some powder out of the jar and I put it in the little glass here. And uh, you have to make it with with hot water, which I got on the stove. And give it like a little, um, yeah, just a tiny bit. All right. This smells pretty bad. Oh well, yeah. I, I, No, that's all right. That's all right. Let's just have. Um, uh, so I just want to mix it up. You have to make sure all the you have to make sure all the powder dissolves, which is why you use the hot water. So I'm just gonna mix it here. I usually don't do it in a wine glass. I'm just trying to. You know, <laughs> um, Reg was doing it in a wine glass. It's pretty nasty. All right. um, it's dissolved enough. Topping off with cold water. It's like a cocktail from hell. I, uh, I can't wait. I think we can both just drink from the wine glass rather than try to pour it. Oh, okay. You want to go? I will go first for this magnesium supplement. Hopefully I'm not too sleepy to finish the uh, episode. Oh, yeah, he just this uh, lemonade-flavored water beverage is caffeine-free, so I'm <laughs> worried that I have nothing to counteract this magnesium. Here we go. It's it's like barely flavored like lemon like raspberry lemon. It it does not taste too gross to me. I like to think of it as mummified Lacroix. Mummified Lacroix, that's pretty good. <laughs> it is dusty as hell. Yeah, it does. Like like once you get down to the dregs, it sort of has this like mineral salty kind of. Flavor I'll be I'll to be it. honest. I'll I might take that above the lemonade flavored water beverage. I'm really? gonna give that a four point five. What I've just started to do, I mean, I just made maybe like a good like four ounces here. What I've been doing is making like eight to ten ounces and then just kind of like sipping it over the course of half an hour because mm, yeah, it's yeah. just such like an unpleasant flavor. Yeah. But it, it, I mean, it is really helpful in helping me go to sleep. Like that hit, hit the CBD out like a light. Um, I'm going to give it a five actually just because... Uh, because uh, it, it is so helpful in that regard, even if it mm. tastes like, <laughs> like dust. All right. Well, the rankings seem pretty clear. Freshly homemade lemonade is at the top, followed yeah. by the Simply Lemonade, yep. followed by the Magnesium Supplement, and then Lemonade Flavored Water Beverage yeah, is at the very bottom. The very bottom. Okay, so that was uh, When Life Gives You Lemons. That's what you uh, think. There what? is actually another drink. Here we go. What? <laughs> we have... <laughs> they simply spiked lemonade. The same people Whoa. who made the simply lemonade, I guess, are also like, what if we sold liquor? <laughs> so here I go. I'm gonna crack that open there. Okay, I'll take a little, little short snort, as my grandpa used to say. Absolutely. I'm gonna get a little short. Is this carbonated? I can't quite. Yeah, it is. Just holding up to the microphone, trying to get that good ASMR. It's lightly carbonated. Yeah. All right. Gross. Mm. Do not like mm. it. 
That is gross. Oh, I know. I can't even. I can't even. I just gotta pour it in the in the spit bucket. We have a spit bucket here. It's it's. Oh, that is. This is really unpleasant, and it's only sold in tall boys. Yeah. Now, according to this, it is five percent juice. Is it five percent alcohol as well? Yeah. Five percent alcohol, five percent juice, ninety percent bullshit. I don't know what's going on there. I had it in my mouth, and I thought to myself, I miss lining Google so much. <laughs> you know, the thing is, it's like it's like chasing after the Mike's hard thing, but it's like really bitter. Yeah, yeah, it it, it is. It's it it's it's um. If you are a child huh. trying to get drunk, like yeah. far be it for me necessarily trying to give advice to children trying to get drunk, but like don't get the simply <laughs> spiked lemonade. It's not going to do you no, good. No, it's it's really not. And now I have this whole ass tall boy. I got to figure out what to oh. do with. I'm going to give that a two. Uh, I didn't hate it as much as the water, as the flavored water beverage. That kind of made me think, am I going to die drinking this? <laughs> like just a little bit, just like like a quick flash of I'm going to die. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm going to give this Simply Spiked a 3.5. All right. Fair enough. I, I think it's still at the bottom of the list. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, thank you for that little uh, yeah. a- adult treat. Um, and so that was... When life gives you lemons, that's what uh, you think. There's it- another one. Oh my god! <laughs> I, uh-huh. I, I, I apologize. I Mike's hard le- really, Patrick. No, no, no. I got I got Mike's harder lemonade, and I'm so curious as to what the hell harder? that's supposed to mean. I'm assuming it's, it's like eight percent alcohol oh, instead of okay. the like four point five that your typical alcopop goes for, sure. as they say in the UK. Here we go. Pour here. So this one's really going to get us fucking... All right, that's good. We're going to get going. This is also carbonated. This seems more carbonated than the Simply yeah, Spiked. Yeah, yeah, this is, a, this is a little fizzier. Oh, okay. Slancha? Yep. Oh, nope, 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 nope. Mm-mm, nope. Oh, ugh. I found that much more tolerable than the Simply Spiked. Mm, no, no. that that, that Just ha- because it is so fucking sweet. This is like a hangover in a can. There's so much sugar in there. Oh, no. Um, but it didn't have that bitterness that the Simply Spiked. No, no. That, that just that just tapes. That, that, that tastes like... It just has that, that cheap liquor flavor. I can't. I cannot. Fair enough. Okay, heart. Okay, Mike's. I'm giving that a 4.5. I'm giving it a 2. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to end that segment on okay. the on that for well, you, but that was when life gives you lemons, and I guess that's. And how I we're didn't end that segment God. on that because Damn there it. is limoncello in the freezer. There is limoncello in the freezer. So I make occasional pilgr- pilgrimages to Trader Joe's, and every now and then I get something, and I'm like, "Ooh, this is fun!" And uh, that's why we've had limoncello sitting in our freezer for. Uh, I think we tried this over the summer. And put it back in the freezer. Oh, it's so syrupy. Oh, man. That is the grossest pour I have ever seen. It's like oily. Well, that's what happens when you put liqueur in the freezer. It's fine. It's But it's like really oily. It's got those legs. Slechayim. That is like a melted lemon popsicle. Yeah. Yeah, it is. This is this is this is fifty two proof. I think the alcohol in this balances with the flavors a lot better than the other two beverages we just tried. I would um, agree. This is something tall. It is like very syrupy in a way that I find unpleasant. Yeah, it has been in the freezer. 
I'm going to give that a I think five. It, I think it has a really kind of... I, I know it's not the best limoncello out there. Not, I'm not like a limoncello snob or anything. Um, but, I mean, it's just it's Trader Joe's brand. So I, I'm sure that there are better versions out there. It's a very pleasant aftertaste. Um, I'm actually going to give it a 6.5. Oh, you're going for it. You're going for it. Let's see how, let's see if we get through utilization after that, uh, uh, 26%. Okay. I know, but the mic's harder. It's 8%. (laughs) And again, you rejected the mic's harder the second the, uh, a tablespoon touched your lips. Mm. So lemoncello. That's uh, lemonade adjacent, I might say. All right. Well, on that uh, fancy little note, that Look was... Look me in the eyes and tell me if you think this segment is over. I'm afraid to. It is not. Oh. Um, next, we are going to rank the moment in Eddie Murphy's Delirious where he is doing an Elvis impression and he says lemonade, which is one of my favorite things that has ever existed in anything. Elvis wants some lemonade? Lemonade. That cool, refreshing drink. Lemonade. What cool, refreshing drink. That is, I, 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 I'm fully serious. Eddie Murphy doing that is my number one thought association with the word Elvis. I do not think of Elvis. I think of Eddie Murphy. I love it. What do you, on a scale of one to 10, how do you rank when Eddie Murphy in Delirious goes, lemonade, what cool, refreshing drink? Uh, I must say that is the first time that our listeners have heard you do that impression. (laughs) It's not mine. It might also be my primary association with the word lemonade. So maybe I do just say that a lot around the house to myself. To yourself, to me, to the house plants. What do you, to the UPS guy. What do you what do you rank it? To I'm, the I'm, neighbor. That's a that's a ten out of ten from me. To the process server giving us the eviction notice. Doesn't get any better than Eddie Murphy saying lemonade. What do you think? I'm giving it a poop emoji. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not because of anything Eddie Murphy's done because of you. I got one more. Um, the lemonade stand scene in Adam's family. What do you rank that scene? Do you remember? The good, they are selling uh, lemonade at a lemonade stand yeah, once they're poor yeah, and the yeah, Girl yeah. Scout comes up and yeah. she only drinks uh, no preservatives or right, whatever. Right, right, right. And yeah, and then she's like, well, I'm selling Girl Scout cookies. And they're like, are they made of real Girl Scouts? That's not the funniest scene in that movie. I have a fondness for it. I'm giving it a 7.5. Mm-hmm. Although I have to say that actress, they do bring her back to be the main bitchy girl at the oh, camp in oh, really? Adam's Family Values. Oh, that's so and funny. And then she's a recurring character on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Harmony, who's like who's like mean blonde girl who gets turned into a vampire. Uh, so, um, and that that's like kind of the most of that actress's career. Um, I just, I, I don't think it's, I don't. I don't think it's the funniest. It's I'm going to give that a five. Okay. Five out of ten. It's like about halfway in terms of the funniest. Yeah. It's not as good as Gomez saying, thing, it's terrible when you stutter. Yes. Yeah. That's my favorite joke in that movie. That's so funny. It's great. That's so funny. Um... <laughs> oh, 
Oh, man. I wish we could put that on judalization. Anyway, so the next segment that we have nope. is... Ju- Where do you rate the hook from the Gucci Mane song, Lemonade? By the way, I have it looped on here. We can listen to it for another oh, two oh, minutes. You, no, no, no. It's okay. I, I got it. Um, I, I don't that know. That shit's hot. That shit's fire. Love it. That I is a nine out of ten for I me. I don't know why I keep enabling you. Um, but I'm going to give it a 4.5 because I really don't like children's choruses. And oh, pop no. Songs. It just kind of doesn't. It, it just. I, I, I. Look, I, I, I will go with you like. I think I Can by Nas. I think that's crap. I think uh, that May song where all the kids sing the Welcome Back Cotter themes. Like, I think that's kind of crap. Uh-huh. But, whoa, the hook on Lemonade. Mm. That, that does it for me. I gave it a nine. Okay. Um, I have one final, and this time I mean it. No. Oh, no. Will you describe what is in this uh, Tupperware in front of you? <sighs> Cut up pieces of lemon. We're going to suck a lemon. All right. Live on the air. As made famous by babies on Instagram. <laughs> this better be the last one. This I is, can't this is imagine. Fa- this is, in fact, a, a, we, we have 11 Where uh, we could go from here. taste tests here. Here we go. All right. Let's just suck a lemon. Okay. One, two, two three. three. <laughs> um, you know, not that bad. <laughs> oh, oh, they put it back in their mouth. Oh, I went I went full baby on YouTube with it. I I did not enjoy that. I kind of like it. <laughs> Patrick knows this story. My grandpa Charlie was an onion farmer, <laughs> and I never saw him do this because he was like retired, like well retired by the time I was like old enough to be like a conscious being of people around me. Um, but the the family story was that he would take an onion. And peel it and bite into it like an apple. And I always thought to myself, oh my God, how could someone do that? But I kind of get it now. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really not as bad as it was. I don't, I don't know why everyone like freaks out about that so much. It's fine. I don't know. I, mean, I wouldn't want to like eat it like I eat an orange, but mm-hmm. I don't know. You're getting it all. Yeah. Um. I'm glad that you didn't like it, though, because you deserve to suffer. <laughs> um, I'm going to give the real lemon. I mean, it doesn't have the balance of the sugar, but it's the real deal. I'm going to give it a 7.5. That was our other segment. When life gives you lemon, uh, make a buffet. I think we all had a good time with that one. Yeah, I think one of us had a good time with look that at, one. Look at all that homemade lemonade we got left over. Yeah, we do have a lot of homemade le- lemonade left over. So there, there is like at least some silver lining to the past 10 minutes of <laughs> chaos. Anyway, um, so, do, so we both agree that the real fresh homemade lemonade is number one with a bullet. Um, I mean, if we are discounting Eddie Murphy and Delirious, then yeah, real fresh homemade lemonade. No, because I gave him a poop emoji. Oh, we're, we're averaging that's here. True. Oh, that's true. That's true. You didn't. You also didn't like the Gucci. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. 
great. So will you finally, mercifully, for the love of fuck, moving on <laughs> to the last segment of this podcast episode, little segment we like to call Judalization, asking ourselves, how do we rank the movies that we've seen in terms of how well they utilize the the magic, the mystery that is Judy Greer? Mm-hmm. Um, number one, currently best utilized uh, performance, Eric LaRue, Michael Shannon's directorial debut from 2023. Um, currently, we have 19 movies on the list. Um, so we've got In Memory of My Father down at number 19. And then uh, in the middle, we have uh, Descendants at number 10. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. So um, what are you thinking about where uh, Judy Greer playing Ramona in Lemon might be uh, territory-wise? So I do believe that the way the list has worked out, and we've talked about this on several episodes, is that there is... Her being well-utilized, there is her being sort of non-well-utilized, uh, interchangeable, kind of not adding a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And then at the bottom, we have the movies where she is actively miscast. Right. I am struggling to figure out if she is actively miscast in Lemon because I'm struggling to figure out what a properly cast Ramona would look like. But... Given that it is a chaotic movie where actors make all kinds of weird choices, Mm -hmm. if this was a role that was given to someone who made a weird choice that I found amusing, Mm -hmm. it might have been better. But instead, it was Judy Greer who more or less played it straight, and which is the absolute like last thing that this particular movie needed from that relationship. Yeah, I I think of all of the like name actors who show up in this movie, so many of them are just like completely in their wheelhouse. Like, I mean, like I said, you know, Fred Melamed, Jewish dad at a Passover. Mm -hmm. That is like, he was born to play that role. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you have uh, uh, the agent is played by Jeff Garland. He just sits behind a desk and bellows. He's great at it. You know, Um, Michael Sarah kind of a, a weird performance from him uh but definitely one of the best i've seen i think he's so fucking funny in that role jillian jacobs perfectly cast J- c- compared with like that like like with the environment around her i do kind of feel like she is miscast mm-hmm. um i don't know i agree with you i'm not sure who would be a better ramona but i i think i i agree with you where it's like she plays it straight um the emotions are very honest they're very present and it i mean i guess it serves what we are theorizing is the director's goal of making the audience uncomfortable it definitely works towards that Mm -hmm. um i mean more so than if she was being insincere sure um so i i think that as far as meeting what we're assuming is the director's goal she is well utilized because she's good at um you you know she's very good at connecting emotionally with the material that she's given and that makes those scenes like more uncomfortable Mm. but she does kind of because of that end up sticking out like a sore thumb considering the other characters who were sort of orbiting uh, Isaac. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that kind of makes me want to put it somewhere in the middle, probably a little lower on the list though, because you know, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't love that. It's like, Oh, let's, let's like show this like really toxic relationship where she's getting threatened by her partner Mm -hmm. and just sort of make it this like, this like spectacle, like, like, like something you're going to read in a vice article. Um, I'm really not in love with that. So um, I would want to put it like bottom half. Yeah, for sure. Um, Bottom half. So I think this is going to be a thing where we disagree. Okay. Because I didn't react at all to the relationship scenes. I was just sort of puzzled by what the fucking point was. I don't think she was well utilized at all in that regard. And I think that's just a difference between the two of our reactions to those scenes. So my if I if it was just my choice, I would put it below grandma and above the cat returns. I think it is actively miscast. I think it is maybe not like as pathetically useless as the cat returns right but i do think it makes the movie worse i would put it um so so when you're saying between grandma and the cat returns like between 17 and 18 that's right so almost the very bottom making the the new 18 out of 20 i was thinking a little bit higher um i was thinking you know at 14 and 15 we have pottersville and the key man which is just sort which is sort of like 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 the rice cake of roles where it's like she's serviceable they exist but like to what end she's just Mm -hmm. she's just kind of set dressing i would say i want to put it above the key man uh to make it the new 15 okay um just because i i think even though it's even though the performance does impact me as an audience member in a way that like i don't like and i don't appreciate like there is there there is something that the director wants from her performance more than just like, Oh, we need a mom or, Oh, we need a girlfriend. Sure. Um, so that even though it's, you know, I have my misgivings about it, it does feel more substantive. Um, have we had disagreements with this many entries in between where it should go? Cause we flip a coin to determine disputes, but right. Um, should we just flip a coin and it is either new 15 or new 18, or should we put it somewhere in the middle? Uh, we could, I mean, we could, we could just split the difference and, and put it in the middle. So it would be like, what, what would that make it like between grandma and Jeff who lives at home or between grandma and the key man? I mean, between Jeff who lives at home and the key man. So you want to flip a coin and if you win, it goes above Jeff who lives at home. And if I win, it goes below Jeff who lives at home. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That All sounds right, good. Let's do that. That sounds good. Call it. Tails. It is heads. Oh, okay. So it goes below Jeff who lives at home, making Lemon the new number 17, lucky number 17, something like that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Patrick, I've got great news for you. <gasps> you never have to talk about Lemon again. Yay, we did it. <laughs> um, Ooh, that mic's harder sneaking up on me. <laughs> now that we've gotten that out of the way, we can uh, we can rest and recuperate mm-hmm, and recover mm-hmm. uh, from this episode in time to move on to uh, our next episode, which is going to be the 2000 rom-com <laughs> What What Women Want. 
Missing Valentine's Day by a week. Uh, <laughs> um, directed by Nancy Myers and uh, starring Helen Hunt and Mel Gibson. This Yay. is gonna be this is gonna be a whole fucking thing. Yeah. So join us next month for a whole fucking thing. Ninety six Greers is part of the Now Playing Network. Check out other podcasts at nowplayingnetwork.net. Follow us on Mastodon at 96Greers at LaserDisc.Party. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Panda Bear Shape. And you can follow me on Instagram and Blue Sky at Uptown Song Club. You can email us at 96Greers at Proton.me or you can leave us a voicemail at SpeakPipe.com slash 96Greers. And until next time, I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. And, and say, say goodbye, goodbye to these.